Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Well, we want to turn our attentions now to the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. We're starting in our series in Exodus. We're going to look at the life of Moses and his struggles in Egypt and how he delivered through the Lord's power Israel from the Egyptians. But what we have done so far, we've looked at chapter 1. We took a little bit of time last week to understand what was going on in Egypt at the time. And uh, again, I, this is going to be part 2 of when it's time to resist. Because what you're going to see is... You're going to see, as we saw last week, a forced population control by a dictator. And he's going to start, as we saw, with propaganda and propagandizing the Jews. And then eventually force them to forced labor and take away their rights. Now, what I want to make mention about this is because I want you to look at the scene and then look at what's currently going on in our world. And you'll see the same program happening all over the world where propaganda is used to the masses and then the masses believe the propaganda and then they use that to create group consensus and then that group consensus targets a particular group that is unacceptable in their culture. So obviously Pharaoh did this, and we saw a little bit of that last week with his propagandize. Now, I want you to keep note of this before we get into the text. It always starts with a person that's very evil and wants to do things, but he can't go full out with his full evil. He's got to start slowly. So Hitler had to start out slowly. Stalin had to start out slowly. Mao Zedong started out slowly, but then eventually it reaches a crescendo where they just show themselves fully how evil they are. But it first starts with propaganda. And I want you to take note of that. Propaganda works on an uneducated populace that simply can't critically think. And I want you to think about that. This is how it's been, it's been driven through societies. The program is you dumb down the society and then you give them something to fear. A fake fear, a false fear, whatever it is, and if they don't have the ability to cross-check, to fact-check, to critically think, then that group consensus will start building. And as you see, what happened in Egypt is happening now. So if you go through the public school systems, the colleges, universities, there's an agenda. If you listen to the media, there's an agenda. And it's almost like they say the same thing. It's like they had a a meeting in the morning and said, we're all going to say this today. Have you noticed that? And they'll say the same keyword, catch words, like they send out a memo or something. You'll hear it on the college campuses, you'll hear it in the media, and you'll hear it in politics. And it just continues to keep being repeated. It's called propaganda. And this is what's happening to Israel at this point in time. But here's the deal. Every dictator knows you just can't fully just start wiping out people. you got to start slow. And as we saw last week, what Pharaoh is doing is he he can't just eliminate the Israelites immediately because it's an economic problem. If he goes full bore and starts wiping out the Israelites, that's an economic asset he can't lose, if that makes sense. They're a prime source of labor, if that makes sense. So it's like, you know, in America, they would love to get rid of you and I, 
Absolutely. But you know the problem is? We're paying all the taxes. You see the problem? We'd love to eliminate the middle class. We'd love to eliminate these Christians and Jews who believe in a Judeo-Christian ethics. Well, but we can't, we're going to have to do it slowly because if we just wiped them all out, it would have hurt the economy because they're the ones funding this whole thing. And so you see these parallels. So what Pharaoh starts with is fertility. We saw that. And now we're going to see full aim on the fertility. Now think about this in our own country. What's the first thing the deep state wants? Population control. Right? Through fertility methods. So abortion on demand is the way to control the population. That's what Pharaoh is going to do in this text. He's going to start what we'd call the abortion cycle, but they're going to do it after birth. He's going to try to force this, just like the guy in Virginia is trying to do. The governor there who says, well, we'll make the baby comfortable after they're born, and then the mom can decide whether they're going to kill it or not, right? You heard the governor of Virginia say that. That's infanticide. The people of Virginia, these people voted him in. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but I'm saying that's the kind of person that guy is, and most people. Well, they'll say, well, you know, the baby, you know, it's not really fully human, even until maybe they're older as a child. And it's like, what? They're getting to the level of Pharaoh where they're going to kill the child after they're born. And so we're seeing the same thing keep going. Now, here's the deal. How come this works so well in Egypt? And we're going to get to the main text right now in just a second. Why did it work so well? Why does the masses follow dictators? Why do they? Why do they do that? How do ordinary people turn into Nazis? How does that happen? How do people who are supposed to know good and evil turn evil against other people? Turn them in. How does that happen? What goes wrong in them? Just let me give you a few things before we get in the text. I want you to think about this. The same thing you're seeing in this text with Pharaoh and the Israelites is the same thing you're going to see with Hitler and the Jews in Nazi Germany. And I'm going to tell you what, it's going to repeat with the Antichrist. He's going to go after the Jews again. That's why you're seeing the anti-Semitism rise, not only in our country, but around the world. It's rising. Well, it's to create ordinary people to go against the Jews. Think about this. What's happening now? The Egyptians benefited from the evil Pharaoh would do to the Jews. The society will benefit from hurting the Jews is what he really did, what he sold. What happened in Nazi Germany? They became the scapegoat, told the people, you will benefit if we will eliminate this people group. You will benefit, because they're controlling all the finances. They're controlling this, they're controlling that. The Zionist world, they're wanting to take over everything. So he told the German people, you will benefit from me dealing with them. That's what Pharaoh did. It's the same thing the Antichrist is going to do, by the way, to the Jews. Same thing now. You will benefit from this, they'll say. And then, once that's taken in by people who can't critically think, and then you dehumanize them, then they're fair game. And that's what Egypt did. That's what Hitler did. He dehumanized. Like you saw on the prophecy update. Did you see what's going on in Europe? How they dehumanize the Jews? These parades? They turn them into evil characters and whatnot? Did you see that? Some of the pictures? That's what I'm talking about. And let me add this. 
whether it was in Egypt, whether it was in Nazi Germany, or it's today, the scarcity of courageous, good people. There was no one to stand up for them. No one in Egypt stood up to Pharaoh, except what you're going to see in the text, two gals. No one stood up to him. And this is the problem today. No one is standing up to evil anymore. No one's saying, enough. No further do you go. We got a lot of good moral Christians. We got a lot of good kind Christians. But we're not finding any heroic Christians anymore. We're not finding people who have enough steel in their spine to say, no, this is it. We're not going to allow this to happen. Why? Has anybody bought in the lie? The answer to that question of why there's not enough Christians standing up to evil is in this text. And I want to show it to you today. Because we're going to learn something, we're going to take it away, and we're forever going to be like these two women that did what they did for Israel and protected them. Let's start in verse 15. I know it's a long introduction, but i got to set the stage. Verse 15 says this, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Zifra, and the, the name of the other one was Pua. Now, these are Hebrew names, and I'm going to tell you what their names are. The first one is Beauty and Splendor. There's a reason for that, because what they're going to do is going to protect the Hebrew babies, especially the males. And so their name fits their character. They are beautiful and they have splendor because of their moral fortitude for what they're going to do. Notice this. Their names are etched in the scriptures. When you see nobodies and their names are etched in the scripture, it's the same thing Jesus said to the woman who poured oil on his feet. Her name will never be forgotten. Mark it down, put it in scripture. Because what these two did is beyond even what the elders of Israel did. There's no mention of the elders of Israel here. All it mentions is these two ladies. Interesting, isn't it? Notice that Pharaoh is never named. You know why? Because he's evil. There's no point of naming him. You get named in Scripture many times because you're doing the will of God. And so these two gals, obviously the head of the Hebrew midwives... And there's obviously a lot of Hebrew midwives under them, but they're the two ones in control of the midwifery in Israel at this point in time. Now, what's happening here is they're being told by the Pharaoh who could kill them, who could take them out at any point in time, they're going to be given a directive. And in this directive, you don't see it, but obviously, if a dictator tells you, hey, you need to do this, you can see why someone would cave into that because of fear. Let's continue the story. Watch. Verse 16. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, the idea of these midwives that would go there and help the, the lady um, through the pregnancy and, and through the birthing aspect but what would happen in the situation is these midwives would come, and basically what he's telling them to probably do is smother the child or strangle the child before the Hebrew woman understands what's happening. And that could easily be done. You would never know it. So what it is, it's a secret murdering. And it's kind of like what's happening with abortion. 
It's a secret murdering that's going on. It's an infanticide that no one talks about. And so this is basically the first Planned Parenthood, if you, you can see and understand what they're up to. He's telling them to do that. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't say in the scripture, but obviously there's a stick and a carrot involved in this. The stick, obviously, is if you disobey Pharaoh, you're dead, right? Maybe the carrot, I don't know, is money. I don't know. It doesn't say that in the text. But funny thing is, anytime you do a deal with the devil, there's a stick and a carrot. There's a temptation of, hey, I'll give you what you want, but if you don't do it, I'll kill you. And there's always a stick and a carrot involved in things. So we don't know all that's involved in, in the carrot aspect or the stick aspect, but guarantee you, on the stick aspect, they could lose their lives. And I want to tell you something a little bit about the stick and carrot in our lives, about what's going on even in today's culture. There is a stick and a carrot that the ungodly are trying to give you. Go along with us, and we'll leave you alone. Go along with us, and we'll give you what you want. Go along with us, and you can keep your job. Go along with us, and you can keep your retirement. Go along with us, and we won't call you a bigot. Go along with us, and we won't call you a phobe. Go along with us, and we won't call you divisive. We won't call you racist. We won't call you homophobic. Just go along with us, and we'll leave you alone. But if you come against us, we'll come after you. I saw an interview, well, not an interview, but it was a guy with a camera talking to one of these crazy nut job Antifa types. And they were just asking him, hey, what's your argument? What's your problem? What do you have? He goes, I don't know. I'm just going to beat you up. And again, I'm, I'm not using the expletives that he used. But the only argument they had was, you're a racist, and you deserve to die, and if these cameras are off of me, I would kill you. See, that's who you're dealing with. This is the mentality of some of these people. They don't want to argue because your logic would trump theirs, and they obviously don't, they don't have an argument, so their preference is, I'll hurt you. I'll just hurt you. And how do you like that? So the stick is being used today to make people afraid to shut down free speech, to shut down free association, to shut down you protecting yourself with the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And now what do we have with people who play the game? We have full-blown anarchy in our cities. How come no one addresses the homeless situation? Why don't they deal with that? How come they don't do anything? How come they don't say anything? It's turning into absolute anarchy. It's like medieval. It's like going back into medieval times. Why are they not doing that? Because if you come against it, somehow you're, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to make up the phrase, um, you're phobic, uh, what would it be, homelessophobic or something like that? You're homelessophobic. Something, I don't know, they would make up something. But you know what the issue is. They're just letting anarchy happen. And if you say anything, well, you're a racist or whatever, just to shut you down. No one's responsible anymore. Have you noticed that? That's uh, not my fault. I don't know. We don't know. I don't know why there's so many homeless. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. And so the stick in the carriage is being used today on the American people. Francis Schaeffer said it the best. And he said this in the 60s. He said, look, the American people are going to be lulled to sleep by two things. And this is what he predicted. He saw it in the 60s and it was happening then. If you can give the American Christian affluence, they will shut up. And if you can give the American Christian personal peace 
which means no one's messing with him. He can go home, watch the ball game, and no one uh, go after him or his family. You got them. And he predicted that in the 60s, and sure enough, it has come true. And so now we don't have a lot of Christians that have a backbone anymore because they've been lullabied by affluence and personal peace. Look what they do. Verse 17 is the answer to all of this and what we have to do. But the midwives feared God. Amen. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but save the male children alive. There is the answer, my friends. Okay, so this term, fear God, you've seen it many times in the scriptures. Do you know what the old American Christians used to be called when they saw a guy or a gal who followed the Lord? They called them what? God-fearers. You remember that in our history? They're a God-fearing people. They're a God-fearing person. Remember hearing those terms? Do you know why they used that? Why didn't they ever say, he's a God-loving person? How come they didn't say that? How come it said God-fearing? Because this is what they're doing. It doesn't say you're God-loving. Oh, that's assumed, by the way. If you fear God, it's assumed that you love him. But this is something different when you fear God. Way different. And it's the reason... People don't have a backbone anymore. They don't fear God. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me unpack the fear of God, what that means. It doesn't mean to be terrified of Jesus or terrified of the Father. It doesn't mean to be terrified in that sense as believers. It means that I'm afraid of the consequences of disobeying God. You see the difference? It's not a fear of God, it's a fear of the consequences that will ensue in my life if I disobey God on this particular issue. I'm going to pay the piper. That's how you understand the fear of God. It is a reverential awe of God, but it fears God's consequences rather than man's consequences, which is fundamentally different. Let me tell you how you're going to live your life. You're only going to live your life one of two ways. You're either going to fear God, you're going to fear man. That's it. And the question is, who do you fear? If I fear man, I know the game that will be played. I will buckle under the pressure. I won't make waves. I won't say anything. I'm not going to be divisive or whatever they call me. I'm not going to do this. I want to be liked by men. But if you take the fear of God stance, guess what will happen? You'll have the wrath of man come against you. You'll be square with God, and you're okay. But the consequences of that from man will ensue on your life, and a lot of people just don't like that. So people start playing a game. They think they're fearing God, but at the same time they're fearing man, and they're confused. And because of this confusion, they will side with being moral and kind and compassionate, which is necessary, but it's only half of the game. But they won't go to do anything as far as the truth is concerned. You have to have both aspects. And I've mentioned this many times. In your relationships, you have to deal with people with grace and truth. Notice the order. Grace, then truth. What does the scripture say about Jesus? He came in what? Grace and truth. We have Christians that simply just want to side with grace, but never give the truth. 
So if you just side with grace, that's the relationship part, that's great, and they don't want to mess up the relationship, but at what point, if you're going to be a Christian, are you going to interject the truth? At what point? Because you have to have both. Remember the woman at the well? What did he do with her? Gave her grace at the well, and then what did he tell her? The truth. You're right. The man you're living with right now is not your husband. You had four before him. Grace, truth. So in the fear of God, you will deal with people in grace and truth. But if you fear man, you will only deal in grace. And Christians think that's okay. This is why, folks, we have lost the culture war. We thought that if we just be Christian nice guy, we'll win the culture. How do we win the culture on marriage? How do we win the culture? We didn't. We lost it, right? Why? There wasn't enough people who feared God. This is what happens. So two women resist this evil. They obey God rather than man. They follow God's law rather than man's law. And they look to God's deliverance rather than man's deliverance. Remember, Jesus said it this way. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Remember that? Be afraid of the one who can kill both the body and soul in hell. He's trying to direct us to fear God. When you fear God, you won't fear man. What could they do to you if you fear God? No weapon formed against you will prosper. Let's go back to verse 18 now. So they don't do it. Civil disobedience, right? God bless them. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? They already knew he was going to do this. They already anticipated this, so they got an answer. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now here's the deal. I don't know whether or not they're lying or they're telling the truth. But let me, let me take both aspects and kind of explain it. Let's say they're telling the truth, okay? The Hebrew, if you translate it, says they are like animals. And, and the idea is not, they're not, it's not a derogatory term, but it means that they can give birth without requiring assistance like an animal. That might be true, okay? I don't want to belabor this and then go on to a, a whole rabbit trail, but I actually studied Egyptian birthing this week. Um, <laughs> is that the most bizarre? I had to, I, I, and I did it, obviously, with this text. And I want to know, if they were telling the truth, did the Egyptians have a different way of birthing? Yes, they did, actually. They, they, they had a completely different way of birthing. It was a very long process. It was all drawn out, and it, 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 it required the lady laying on her back. She wasn't on a stool like in the Hebrews, and it was totally different. There's no doubt about it, and I can see there's an aspect to this. Yes, the Egyptians had a different birthing method rather than the Hebrews. Okay, so they might be telling the truth. No problem. Now, let's say they're telling a lie. Uh, we just can't get to them. We can't, you know, and who knows what they told the other midwives. Hey, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drag our feet on this. When they call you over to help deliver, drag your feet. Don't get there in time. So let's pretend this is, this is a lie aspect, okay? Question, is this wrong for them to lie to Pharaoh in order to save the lives of the Hebrew babies? If you and I were in Nazi Germany, like Corey Ten Boom's family. 
and the Nazi stormtroopers knocked on your door and says, do you have any Jews in here? What would you say? I would lie. I would say, no, I do not, if I was harboring Jews and protecting them, because even in a fallen world, sometimes we're forced to do something in order to protect the higher good. It would be the moral thing to lie to the Nazis if you had Jews hiding in your walls and say, I do not have any Jews. That would be the moral thing because life is supreme. And in order for me to lie to save a life, that in a fallen world would be the higher order. Does that make sense? It's not like you're not sinning, but it's, it's the higher call. You would be called to lie to protect the life. It's just like someone came to your door and says, is all your family here because I'm going to kill everybody? No. Right? In those situations where you protect the life, this is where you see the allowance. It's just like the harlot in Jericho that hid the two spies. You remember that? They came and you have spies here and she covered them up. She lied to save their life. So in situations like that, you have to understand the higher calling takes precedent, even though you might have to, to sin in order to protect the higher call. Again, so it, it could go either both ways. It could, they're either telling the truth or they're lying, but again, the, the outcome is they're saving baby boys okay, from infanticide. Okay, verse 20. Therefore God dwelt with the midwives, dwelt well with the midwives. This he, you know, God honored what they did. He honored their, their commitment. And the people multiplied and grew very mightily. It had the opposite result of what Pharaoh wanted. He wanted to decrease the population. It increases the population, what's happening. It backfires on him. And so it was, because the midwives feared God. Second time, that he provided households for them. He rewarded them. Typically, a, a Hebrew midwife is someone that couldn't have babies. And so what they would do is turn into a midwife to help others. And so what God did is open their womb and bless them with their own families and own kids. Now, now think about the irony in that. I'm going to give you children at a time when it's the most dangerous to have children. And what does that say about God? I can protect them. I can protect them. I used you two girls to protect the entire Israelite population. I want you to think about this. There's something deep and sinister that's beyond Pharaoh in this, and I'll get to that. But had this worked, it had the potential of wiping out the Jews as a group, people group. It, it would only taken about a couple decades if this continued to happen. So who, let me ask you this. Who do you think was behind Pharaoh? Who was giving them the ideas to kill male babies? You got it. Satan. Why? It goes back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will destroy you, will crush your head. At this point now, Satan is now narrowing his focus. As the patriarchs have moved through, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes, and the 12 boys, and now the nation of Israel exists in the land of Goshen, and from one of these individuals will come a messiah figure and he's got to wipe that out satan has always been trying to wipe out the jews because of that promise in genesis three fifteen. so the inspiration from pharaoh 
has to come from Satan. And why did he pick male boys? Why not the girls? Because Messiah is to be a male, right? But obviously, you have practical reasons. Maybe Pharaoh didn't even know the spiritual reasons why, but the spiritual reason is because the Messiah is going to be male. The practical reasons or political reasons is, well, I'll just take away their army by taking away their males. And then the women will, it will intermarry with the Egyptians and will just wipe them out as a complete people without even having to go to war with them. Either way, you can see how satanically diabolical this whole thing is. Anyway, it says, verse 20, Therefore God dwelt with the midwives, and he blessed them, right, and provided households for them. And then, let's jump to uh, verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, notice this, now he's going to go full bore. This is the final solution because now he's not getting cooperation with what's going on. His solutions are not working. And so now he lets himself be revealed. The deck of cards has now been shown. Pharaoh commanded all the people the Egyptians saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, talking about the Nile, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now, at this point, all bets are off. He's going for it. He's going to wipe them out. Genocide now has been an official legalization in this country against the Jews there. And so now Egyptians, every Egyptian is called to find male babies of Jewish descent and kill them. It should remind you of what happened to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem when Herod did the same thing, right? Same thing, keeps repeating. And so now, but notice this, this is interesting. This is how subtle these dictators are. They spiritualize it. How did he spiritualize it? When he says, every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river, you know what that says in the, actually the Hebrew? It says, every boy that is born, you, shall expose upon the Nile. What does that mean? It means this. This is funny. This is how groupthink works. This is how Romans 1 mind starts working when you lose your ability to reason and you worship the creation rather than the creator and you start losing your mind. You start believing propaganda. This is what Pharaoh said to them. Kill the boys... Or no, let's not kill the boys. Let the Nile kill the boys. And the Nile God, when you take the Hebrew baby and you hold the baby over the Nile and you drop it into the Nile, the Nile God will tell you whether or not it wants the baby or not. And they believed it. So these people were told, just drop the baby and if the Nile wants to keep it alive, it'll keep it alive. If the Nile wants to consume it, it, the Nile will just consume it and take away all the mess of a dead body as it's whisked out into the Mediterranean. It's clean. We're not burying any infants. What was Pharaoh trying to do? He was trying to get his people to murder people and spiritualizing it, saying, well, it's the Nile God that killed them, not you. You won't be doing it. It's the Nile God. So don't worry. You don't have no responsibility. If the Nile wants to keep them alive, he'll keep them alive. Oh, that's good. That's evil. But it works on a populace that can't think. What person in their right mind would think, oh yeah, the Nile is just going to either keep the baby alive or you know what happens when you drop a baby in the water. It's going to drown to death, right? So it's going to be 100%. But this is how stupid people get. 
This is how easy it is to con people who don't think as you can get them to do anything, to believe anything. Yeah, even though it doesn't match up in reality or whatnot, they still will believe it. Scary, isn't it? I see some of that mentality today. Huh. Midrash sources say this. This is interesting. Midrash is uh, oral commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. The oral tradition that came through the rabbis, what the rabbis said, this is funny. And again, this is not, we're not saying or hanging our hat on this. It's just Midrash, okay? The rabbis said orally, and this was passed on, that sorcerers and astrologers told Pharaoh that a male deliverer of the Israelite was going to be born, which increased his desire to want to kill the male babies. Now, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but when I, 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 and I read that from the Midrash, I thought that's interesting because somebody somewhere implanted this thought into Pharaoh's head. Obviously, we know it's Satan, but maybe that's how it went down. I don't know, but we do know that Satan implanted the thought for him to do this. So what's some application before we, we depart from this? Because it's full-blown genocide. So we, this sets it up for what's going to happen to Moses in the next chapter. Okay, this sets the whole thing up of what his mom is going to do to save his life. So everything is set up to this. The midwives did their job. Okay? So the application is the midwives resisted evil, resisted Pharaoh because of one thing. They feared God. They feared God. We assume they're moral because they don't want to take a life of a baby we assume that they're kind. We assume they're compassionate. But what was the difference that set them apart? Fearing God. Okay. I'm afraid of the consequences that might come into my life if I disobey. That's, that's what they were thinking. They didn't want that consequence. Whether that was in their life then, they're worried about the consequences then, or they're worried about the consequences in the next life. Either way, that made them afraid. And that's the way... Fear of God must be in our lives. We must fear that if we disobey, that something will happen. That God will take out his belt, take us to the woodshed, and give us a spanking occasionally if we get out of line. And I'm using that metaphorically, but you know what I'm talking about. Most Christians are divorcing what they do from their beliefs. So they live an entirely different life because they don't think there's any consequences to the way they're living. They don't see it. They don't acknowledge it. And therefore, they don't fear God. This is why no one can stand up for the truth. They're afraid of men. Let me give you an illustration about more of this. I'm going to drill down just a little bit more. So hang with me on this fear of God. Let me use an illustration. And let me show you a picture. This is the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I don't know if you've ever seen it and you've ever been to it, but they have an international spy museum. And if you go in there, what you're going to be taught, that during the Cold War, our spies had to function with a certain amount of rules in order to resist the communist regime of the Soviet Union and whatnot. And our spies had to follow what's called the Moscow rules in their dealings with things, okay? So this is the whole spy world. And it was stuff like... Uh, you can see pictures of it, and I think we have some inside. You can see museum pictures of all that, and cars. You could hide a person in a car and how they did it, and this and that. But there was rules. 
In the Moscow rules, it was thing, there's like 40 of them. Um, but some of the things were assume nothing. Technology will let you down. Murphy's Law is right. Never go against your gut. Always listen to your gut. It is your operational antennae. Everyone is, pot- uh, is uh, potentially under oppositional control. Don't look back. You are never alone. Uh, go with the flow. Use the terrain. Maintain a natural pace. And it's just on and on and on and on and on about how these spies are to conduct themselves in the area of dealing with the Cold War with the former Soviet Union. Anyway, my point is this. In order to feel, fear God, in order to resist evil, resist things, you have to know the rules. You have to know the rules. You have to know the rules according to what, what fearing God is. It's just not a term. You have to know what's behind it. So in fearing God, part of that will be resisting. Okay? The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. What does that mean? Resist him how? What do you mean? Well, to unpack that, understand that James is taking the Sermon on the Mount and he's unpacking it in the book of James. And he says resist the devil. He's keen on the idea of what Messiah did with the devil in the desert. As Messiah was tempted by the devil three different times in the desert. And Messiah resisted. So how did Messiah resist? By the word of God, right? He used the word of God. But what specifically did he use to resist? To show that Messiah feared God in his humanity. I want you to think about this. The first temptation that Satan gave Jesus, turn this stone into bread, feed yourself. If you're the son of God, do it. What he was doing is trying to get Jesus to be self-reliant, self-sufficiency, instead of being dependent upon God. Do it yourself. You can do it. You have the power. Do it yourself without the will of God. Part of our resistance, part of our ability to fear God, is the ability to be dependent on him rather than self-sufficient in how we're dealing with life. And, 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 And in regards to this first temptation, it's called... The desires of the flesh, or the term will be lust of the flesh. So follow me on this. He's getting Jesus to want to eat after he hasn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. So it's to satisfy a desire of his body. Okay. In order for you to resist the devil and fear God, you have to allow God to meet your physical needs rather than you try to meet those needs. So like Norm was talking about, If you bury grief, for instance, you have a need. That need will stay there. And at some point, that need is going to manifest in other ways. And it will come out in different branches of your life. And you're going to say, I don't know why I'm acting like this. I don't know why. It's because you have a deep need to grieve. And you're not doing it. So what you'll do is you'll be self-sufficient and try to meet that need, even though you don't even know it's there, and meet it through counterfeit ways. Well, if you become self-sufficient in doing that, and you've figured out a plan, whether it's alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, then now you're working independently from God, and it's going to be harder for you to resist. The second thing that comes Jesus' way is, I'll give you the kingdoms. That's the desires of the eyes, the lust, uh, lust of the eyes. The kingdoms of the world I'll give you if, if you'll just bow down to me. Remember that? And in resisting, what Jesus did is he obviously quoted scripture, but it was, it was the idea that 
obedience to God um, on discerning the things that are off limits to us. Obedience to God in being able to discern the things that are off limits to us. The kingdoms were his, but he had to go to the cross first. So Satan tries to shortcut the whole thing, okay? So follow me. So Jesus, that would be a desire of his, of his to have the kingdoms. But he, he refrains from it because he knows he has to pay the price on the cross for that. He has to make the sacrifice. And he resists the devil. By, and that causes, causes him to fear God. Now, now here's the deal in our lives. There are going to be a lot of things that Satan will put in front of you that are off limits. Some of them are actually good things. And that's what really trips us up, is that he'll present something good in front of you, but you know it's off limits. You know if you take it, it's going to send you in another direction. And that right there is, will cripple you in fearing God. Because if you want to take it and you go for it, at that point you won't be able to take a stand. That point you will lose your backbone because you have morally compromised with something. And when you morally compromise, you won't take a stand. You won't be able to resist. And the last one, he says, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will carry you. So Jesus resists that. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He resists that and he fears God. But what is that doing for us? What, what is the application on that as far as fearing God? It's illegitimately thinking that because of who you are or what you do, that somehow God owes special protection for you. And if you approach life in that way, well, I'm a Christian, nothing bad should happen to me. You're throwing yourself off the temple. You're, 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 you're tempting God in that sense. When you do things like that and you put yourself in situations where you're forcing God to rescue you, you're going to be left high and dry. And when you do that, you will not be able to take a stand. You will not be able to resist because you're giving in to what's called the pride of life. You think you're entitled to something special that God never promised you. Now, I drilled down into that and understanding if that's the way the Lord resisted and that was what was behind him resisting the devil, when James says, resist the devil and he will flee, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about all that stuff. And he's saying, if you're going to be like the midwives, basically, of Israel, they weren't like that. They trusted God. They didn't try to satisfy their own needs. Think about their own needs. Preserve their life. Look, we disobey Pharaoh. He's going to kill us. Right? And, and, and so all that was there to tempt them to, well, yeah, let's just go with it. But they didn't. They resisted. And the same thing needs to be said about you and I. Pharaoh is at work, so to speak. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. It's the same mentality. And he's coming to you and I in that spirit saying, will you compromise? Do you want a nice life? Do you want an easy life? you want me to leave you alone? I'll make your life happy. But if you decide to follow God, I'll make your life a living nightmare. Your choice. But I pray that we could be like those two women who stood in the face of a tyrant and says, we're not doing it. God bless them. 
And God bless you for taking up that challenge and saying, I will resist. I will take a stand and I won't let this happen on my watch. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.